You're listening to The Lively Show, episode 80. Welcome to The Lively Show. I'm your host, Jess Lively, and this blogcast is designed to uplift, inspire, and add a little extra intention to your everyday. Welcome to the show, guys. This week, The Lively Show has hit 1 million downloads. I am so grateful for that milestone to be hit, all thanks to you for listening, for sharing it on your blogs and on your social media with people you think might enjoy it. And I am so grateful to hear all of the great emails, comments, and tweets and messages telling me how much this show is helping you change your life in small and large ways. If you would like to help get The Lively Show out there even further for more people who might enjoy this content, please feel free to go leave a review on iTunes. Those reviews help the show rank better on those lists where people might be browsing to find new shows to listen to. So if you'd like to help, please go leave that review. Now let's get into what is the final week of this summer series for June, which is Money Month. We've covered how to make money online in 27 different ways with Jesse and Hillary. And we've had Nicole Lappin on to kick this all off. There are two other money episodes in The Lively Show from season one I also think you might really enjoy. Episode number four is with Eric Williams, who shares how he and his wife, Kelsey, got out of over $40,000 in debt. And then, of course, we have episode number 24 with Mary Beth Storgerhan, who is also giving really tactical business and money advice. In today's show, we have Farnoosh Torabi of Farnoosh.tv. She is an award-winning personal finance expert, a best-selling author, TV personality, and she's also the podcast host of So Money with Farnoosh Torabi. In this episode, we're going to discuss the money mindset shifts we need to make in order to improve our financial future. I think this is a really interesting topic we haven't really touched on is what allows you to then implement the strategies you may have heard Mary Beth talk about in episode number 24, Eric talk about in episode four, or any of the ways to make money online that Hillary and Jesse shared. So feel free to listen to this episode and then start to apply this framework to any of your financial goals. And of course, as I shared on Instagram, I had asked for questions that you have. So at the end of this episode, probably around the 30 minute mark, Farnoosh is going to start tackling your questions that you've asked. Let's go to the show. Farnoosh, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Jess, I'm so pumped and honored to be with you. You're my Shiro. You're my podcast Shiro. I really, really admire and respect everything that you have done as well. So let's get started. Let's talk about your background. How did you get to where you are? Where does this money journey begin? I've had a pretty linear track in my career. And I think it's because I've done a lot of long-term thinking from a very early stage. So I think I was fortunate in that I, at around 18, 19, I knew that I wanted to be working in the media. I knew that I wanted to live a life that was on a stage, helping people, having a platform. So definitely always felt that journalism had a calling, but Along the way, I got scared to be truthful. People were telling me that there's no way you're going to make money being in news. There's no way you're going to be successful being a journalist. It's too competitive. So I kind of sidetracked and I decided to major in finance because who could argue with finance? Finance is really straightforward. It's you're going to make money. The jobs are out there. There are also not a lot of women in the financial at the time. There weren't a lot of women in the financial space. And so I felt that that would be a sure bet. Did you go to a business school? I went to Penn State and I majored in business. I went to the business school there undergrad. But 
the soul wants what the soul wants. And when I was, when I was studying finance, I enjoyed it, but I wasn't, my heart wasn't really in it. And I remember I had an internship my sophomore year in college. It was the only place that had offered me an internship because I was a Penn State grad, so that Penn State student, so that it was beneficial to me. But it was to work in the sales and marketing division at CNBC.com. Well, that works out well. Yeah. So, but you know, the whole time I'm there, I, I'm doing a lot of businessy work, you know, PowerPoints and researching and number crunching, but all over the office, you know, they're airing CNBC. And I thought I want to be on that side of this business. I want to be covering the industry in that way, as opposed to this behind the scenes PowerPoint monkey. Is there any moment that happened that shifted your eye from journalism to finance or was said to you that made you make that concession? Was there a moment where I felt like I can't pursue journalism, I should do or just do finance? Yeah, I think it was, I grew up in a Middle Eastern family. My parents were really big on making sure that their kids became successful. They are immigrants. They didn't want me to grow up being poor. You know, they wanted a better life for me. And like journalism to them was just this sort of very uncertain field. So there was that pressure and they didn't really support it at first. And I remember also being in high school, running my school newspaper. And one day we had a guest speaker, a woman who worked at the local paper. And, you know, she came and spoke to our class and she said to us, if you're interested in having a life and making money, don't become a journalist. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So that kind of made me scared a little bit and just, you know, getting all these negative, all of a sudden I get a feedback you know, it's one thing for your parents to say, don't do something. You probably don't want to listen to them, but it's another for someone who's in the industry to say to you, this is might not be for you. So I got scared and I thought, all right, I'm going to college. And I, at first I didn't know what to major in. I thought, oh gosh, I guess I'll just go to law school. Cause that seems to be what everyone defaults to sometimes when they don't know what they want to do. I'll just go to law school because well, you know, at the time it just seemed like the, the right thing to do, but fortunately I did not do that. So I, I went on this track of finance because as I said, it, was, it seemed like a sure bet, but I, along the way I just, I got pulled, pulled back and I thought I really still want to pursue media and communication. So while I was in school and finishing up my finance degree, I doubled in communications and did a thesis in media, got an internship in in news uh, my last year in college. And I started applying to journalism schools as I was about to graduate and not really sure what was going to happen to me. I thought, okay, well, I'll apply for some business jobs in finance and in consulting, but I also really want to give journalism a shot. So I applied to a few schools and fortunately got in. And to be honest, I didn't really pursue the whole getting a job path. You know, that was just kind of something that I talked about, but I didn't, I don't even think I sent out any resumes. So I was really hoping that I was going to get into journalism school and I did. I ended up going to Columbia Journalism School, got a chance to live in New York and, and report on crazy awesome stories as a novice newbie journalist in the city. And because I was a finance major, that actually opened up a lot of job opportunities for me. The one thing I will say for anyone who's interested in pursuing news or journalism is having a a specialty can go a really long way in differentiating yourself, making you more competitive in the job market. And again, with financial news, not a lot of women at the time. Now I think we'll see a lot more women doing the financial news on TV and in print. But at the time it was there was a lack of, of diversity. And so for me, I think I 
created this opportunity for myself, not super consciously, but it did. So that got me started. I got the opportunity to work at Money Magazine as a junior reporter. And the one thing that I carried and I still carry through to all my projects is I'm really ambitious and I seek opportunities. I don't wait for opportunities to present themselves. So when I was at Money Magazine, I remember one day our publicist there was like, we need someone to go on CNN and talk about our latest cover. Anybody want to do it? And you know, nobody wanted to do it. And I was like, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll throw myself to the wolves and, you know, like I'll go on TV and I'll throw on some lipstick and, and I'll figure it out. And I did, I memorized the whole press release before I got to the station and figured out kind of how to say things in digestible soundbitey ways. And I got there and I was live at 22 on CNN talking about the best places to live in America. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things I find fascinating about your story, and I'm wondering where it fits into this storyline so far. At one point, you're making $18 an hour in New York, and you're in 30 k in debt. Where does that fit into this storyline? I was at Money Magazine making $18,000 a year, and I had $30,000 in debt from my graduate student loans and also some lingering credit card debt from college. This really plays well into my story because I was desperate, financially desperate. I was living in New York, and I was living with a married couple to make ends meet. They uh, had an extra room in their apartment and I was paying really low rent, but also living with a married couple. So there were some trade-offs from a personal lifestyle standpoint. And I realized that I needed to make more money, but I wasn't going to be able to really ask for more money at Money Magazine. Funny enough, I had to find ways to be entrepreneurial and make extra revenue streams for myself. And that was how I got out of debt. I did get out of debt partly by eating lots of canned tuna fish and not going out every night and going home actually to my parents' house and stocking up on things like toilet paper and fruits and vegetables and bringing them back on the Greyhound bus to New York. But really what gave me the jump start to getting out of debt was earning more on the side. So freelance writing, babysitting, I pet sat, you know, anything I could do to make an extra $30, $50, $100 here and there to be able to pay down that debt. The debt, from what you shared, was also student debt. So did you feel like that student debt was hanging over you in some way that you didn't want to just pay it off over time? A little bit, because I felt that because I was working in financial news and also, more specifically, personal finance news, you know, helping people understand personal finance, how to get out of debt, I didn't feel like it would be responsible of me to have debt. Even though you know student loan debt is not exactly the worst kind of debt. It's, and it wasn't the debt that we're hearing about today where now we're hearing students coming out of school with six figures in student loans. This was a, you know around $25,000 in student loans. It wasn't a horror story, but I did feel a personal responsibility to get myself out of debt so that I could really with a clear conscience do my work and, and go out there and be a coach for people and be an advocate for people about their money and be an example Do you feel like it's bad to have student debt? I don't think it's bad. As I say, you know, student loans, there's such a thing as like good debt. I mean, debt is debt. It is what it is. And it can be an emotional weight as much as it can be a financial weight. And I feel as though if you're making the payments on time every month with student loans, and then there's money left over to pay the bills, keep the roof over your head, you're doing fine. It's going to be gone within, at the most, 10 years. And that is a long time. So if you can, at some point, start to accelerate that payoff, you start making more money, 
great. If you can put an extra payment or two a year towards the debt to knock down that principal, pay less interest over time. Awesome. But I don't want to ever see anyone get to a point where they miss a payment because the thing about student loans is that everything is going great and then you miss a payment and it becomes your nightmare. When you miss a student loan payment, you can have your wages garnished, you can have your tax refund withheld if you become really delinquent. So it can really become a huge, huge problem in your life if you don't at the very least make those minimum payments every month. And the interest rate is low enough. It's not that financially taxing. A credit card debt with 15, 25% interest rate, that is, I think, something that you should try to get rid of more aggressively than your student loan. Yeah. So you just really buckle down on your expenses and then upped your payment on your student debt as fast as possible. Yeah. I made as much money as I could. The biggest job I had was actually freelance writing for a local paper about personal finance. And that job paid me probably an extra two to $300 a week, which for me at the time was, I mean, that's huge. It's huge. It's huge. Now, if you make an extra, you know, $1,200 a month, that can go towards your student loans. And actually what ended up happening with those articles is that it became the beginnings of my first book. And when I was about 27, I wrote a book proposal based on those columns and I sold it and I got a big advance. And that advance helped me really just pay that student loan debt off in one fell swoop. That's really the story is like I started making more money doing this side gig of freelance writing the freelance writing projects turned into a book proposal, which became a book which earned me an advance that helped me not only pay off my student loans, but also suddenly have this like savings cushion that I didn't have before. So that's really the beauty, I think, of doing something outside of your nine to five, something entrepreneurial that while in the short term, it's great because it can help you pay off debt or save more aggressively or just you know be able to eat out once in a while a little more in your life. But then you never know what that side project will catapult into, you know, it could become your, for me, at least it's, it took out a life of its own. And now I credit that for really helping me establish my career now today, as it stands as a solopreneur doing all sorts of financial coaching through TV and books and podcasting and partnerships and all that good stuff. That's awesome. And for anyone that's looking to, Money Month includes 27 ways to make money online. So you can go to episode 78 and 79 of The Lively Show to hear 27 ways you can start doing that yourself. How did you get to the point when you realized that the mindsets and disciplines that we have around money is really where your heart lied in terms of helping people with their financial future? I did this reality show called Bank of Mom and Dad. And what I realized through doing a lot of these shows like this, so I did that show and I did some other makeover series, that it was never about the budgeting or the numbers or the debt. It was never about the hard facts that you have this much in debt. The fact is everybody knows that debt's bad. Everybody knows that in order to get out of debt, you need to pay more than the minimum. That's not the rocket science that it's made to, to seem. The real issues were emotional. It was always that, you know, they were spending because there was some sort of void they were trying to fill or they didn't feel confident. They were afraid. They were insecure. They were overconfident in some cases, thinking they could spend more than they had. And so for me, my job was to really peel back the onion, peel back the layers and understand what was at the root of of this misbehavior. And it was usually a behavioral issue, a behavioral mindset problem. 
that is when I realized that what I do for a living is not so much about showing people the black and white of personal finance or balance sheets. It's really about hearing the background, understanding the story. What was your experience with money growing up as a kid? What has been your experience with money up to yesterday? You know, what were your failures? What were your wins? What do you want to do in life? What's keeping you from achieving those goals? And along the way, we can teach the good money rules. But before we get to that, we have to understand the mindset problems, the behavioral issues. There's a lot of crying. (laughs) There's a lot of acting out. And I suddenly became like this money shrink in a way. And it's not unusual that now we're seeing licensed therapists focusing on just financial issues with their clients because money is extremely emotional, I learned. For me, it was never a taboo topic. I felt as though I had a very good I had a good relationship with money. And so I thought this might be my gift to give to people. It's like, this is my talent. This is my skill is to be able to be a shoulder to cry on when it comes to financial matters. But I can give you not just the hard facts about money, but really also the emotional guidance as well. As you're explaining that whole story about the money and the debt is an outcome. It is not the problem and it's not what caused the problem. I just listened to a video with Tony Robbins yesterday. Literally, I was lifting weights and watching a YouTube video with Tony. And he explained something that's mirroring what you're sharing so well. He said, if you've ever failed at something, a lot of times people will say they didn't have the right resources or knowledge in order to succeed at it. So if the debt might be, quote unquote, the failure in this situation, he said, it's not about resources. It's about resourcefulness. But there are three things you need in order for that resourcefulness to work. I'll say them in the way he shared them, which is in reverse importance. So I'm gonna share the least important of the three up until the most important. The least important is strategies, which you said it's not rocket science. It's not like there's not resources and information everywhere all over on the news and in books and in articles online on how to deal with these things. The information and strategies are there. So that's important, but it's the least important of the three. The next is the story. It's the story you tell yourself about why you're in the debt or what you want in the future, which you're saying is like really those behaviors. And then ultimately, he said the number one thing is the state that someone is in in order to then change their story, in order to then implement their strategy. Yes. And I feel like what you're sharing is so beautiful and it just happens really crazy to just align perfectly with what I just took in yesterday and was really enjoying. I'm a disciple of Tony Robbins. I had him on my podcast. He was my first guest on So Money. And I love what he says. I mean, he just is able to really distill life's truisms in these wonderful bite-sized sentences like that's what, and for me, that's really helpful. It's easy to remember and it's inspiring and it's uplifting. So he says always like, you got to change your story. He doesn't allow us to feel sorry for ourselves. It's really empowering actually. I think he also said that the moment you become an adult is when you divorce all the baggage that you were growing up with. That if you're still 35 and blaming the fact that like mommy didn't love me, I'm sorry for that. But you know, now you're an adult and you can cho- make your own choices. You can choose to either let that destroy your future, or you can choose to kind of appreciate the hardship a little bit and and like the emotional difficulty, but that it's made you stronger, you know, and it's given you this awareness. So now when you have your own children, you're not going to be making those same mistakes of neglect or whatever. And he really walks that too. I mean, he didn't have an easy upbringing either. 
Oh, no, 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 no. And no, he really is an example of, of really championing a lot of his own advice. One last thing about Tony. Um, I went to his Unleash the Power Within. Have you? Yeah, it was amazing. I didn't do the walk on fire, but I did take in a lot of the other advice. One of the things he said that has stayed with me since that moment was he said, success without fulfillment is failure. And that's not really a financial tip, but I think for me, and I think a lot of your listeners, they'll get that, you know, because I think we go through life trying to achieve this thing called success. And there's different measures for that. And even in the financial sense, you know, having a lot of money in the bank, that could be clear success. You know, you're a millionaire, you're successful. But if you're not using that money to really meet your goals and to match what you're trying to fulfill out of life emotionally, not that money buys happiness, but that you're using that money in a conscious way that um, that really aligns with your values, aligns with your values, exactly, then you're not successful because you're not fulfilled. Amen. That's literally what I teach with Life With Intention is trying to help demystify what success means because we are taught by culture and society that if I am successful at having the outcomes and achievements that I want, which are on the first two levels of success, then I will be happy. But there's this whole convolution and problem with how we define the word happiness and how we define the word success that creates this system where we're constantly going around and around the mountain instead of getting to the top. And we're told we have to climb to the top, which is not the way that it works. I love that you're sharing that because it's aligned with everything that Life with Intention Online is all about. All right. Well, I knew we were kindred spirits. Here's a question then. So let's use Tony's framework since you're a big fan of Tony as well. If we say that state is number one, story is number two, and strategy is number three, when it comes to money, how can we apply that paradigm so that we can change our financial life? Let's start with state. You need to understand where you are mentally as far as your relationship with money goes. Sometimes we don't even think we have a relationship with money. We think money, it's just as dollars and cents. I have a relationship with people. You absolutely do have a relationship with money. And sometimes it's very subconscious. Ask yourself, when I think about my financial life, what's the first thing that comes to mind? How does it make me feel? Does it make me feel liberated? Do I feel comfortable or do I feel uncertain? Do I feel maybe insecure. Identifying that state of mind that you have with your financial life is very important because it can be an awakening for you. And it might be good to know because it might give you the comprehension like, oh, that's why I'm making really bad decisions with money is because I have this really negative relationship with my money. If you're constantly feeling insecure, then maybe you're also the same person who's constantly under tipping (laughs) or doesn't think that you're worth earning more. You're always undercharging your clients or whatever it is. So that could be interesting for you to discover. That makes so much sense. Because if you feel insecure, like you're saying, that's your state, then the story you're having is, I don't have enough money to pay the tip well. And then the strategy flows from there. So you don't pay what their tip well. Or the story is, I don't deserve to charge what I'm worth. So if you feel insecure, then that's the story. And then strategy, you're undercharging for your services or not asking for the raise. Yeah. Or sometimes the story, you think of the story first. You're like, oh man, the world's against me. I actually had someone write in to my podcast, uh, a question for Tony. Tony was the guest and I had uh, my audience ask him questions. And one person said, hey, Tony, you know, I lost my job. My house is underwater. I just don't feel like I have any 
opportunities in this world to really get ahead financially. I feel like the odds are stacked against me. And he goes, dude, you need to change your story. You feel as though you don't have the power because nothing's in your control. He's like, I feel bad for you, but there are people who have a lot worse circumstances than you. You know, why don't instead you change your story to, I am a skilled person. I have experience. I'm able-bodied. I'm smart. I'm resourceful. I know what I have to do. It may be making trade-offs, but these are my goals and they're important to me and I'm going to achieve them. You know, changing your story, it changes your state. I think those things happen simultaneously sometimes. Once you change your state, your story changes or you change your story, your state changes. When he asked, have you failed at something? Why have you failed? Maybe it's the inverse. What we're expecting is if I have the right strategy, then the outcome will change. So then my story will change around it because my outcome has shifted and then my state will change. He's saying it's the reverse. You start with the state, then the story, then the strategy gets implemented. Exactly. And the strategy is important. You know, once you, I think, understand what your story, your new story is, in other words, I think in the financial sense, that could be like, what is the goal that you want to achieve? Um, That could be another way to look at it. Because I find that before you can really tackle the numbers, you have to have a concrete goal or goals in mind, as specific as possible, not just like, oh, I want to be debt free. But what's the motivating factor? I want to be debt-free because I want to be able to once and for all buy that house or once and for all start that business or have a kid and not be worried about money. That's going to be the motivating factor. That's going to be a really beautiful story for you to achieve. And then once you know what it is you want to do, then there are specific strategies that will fall into place and will seem a lot more achievable because now you're motivated. All right. So we changed the state. And then we shift the story. Where do we go find the strategies that we should be using when it comes to money? Well, you can come to me. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. There are some tried and true strategies that can apply to everybody, no matter your state and story. I think that you obviously know that you want to live within your means and you want to make more than you spend and da 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 da. But my number one strategy is try to increase your income because I find that. I like to add than take away when it comes to strategy. You know, think about strategy is not what can I deprive myself of, but what can I add into my life to get me to achieve the goals that I want to achieve emotionally and and physically and materially. So adding more income, adding more time back into your schedule may mean giving up some things, but it may mean, you know, giving yourself more me time can effectively eliminate some spending time, spending money time. Like, you know, they say that if you don't want to eat bad food, you should schedule things in your schedule that are like activities that will keep you away from the refrigerator or keep you away from... Take a bubble bath. (laughs) Yeah, go take a bubble bath or like go to a yoga class with a friend. So with money, it's about understanding what your weaknesses are. Like if you're always going and driving home or walking home from work and you're going past the same shoe store or anywhere that will entice you to stop in and and browse and maybe buy something that you don't need. I mean, I've done it. I remember in college, I would get bored from studying and I would walk downstairs and go out into like the convenience store and just come back with like $40 worth of because I wanted to just kill time and do something that was distracting. So if you know you have these weaknesses and these tendencies, you want to kind of get ahead of them and schedule things that will allow you to avoid fulfilling those voids and spending money when you don't need to spend money. So it's some behavioral changes, you know, like I think getting a a money buddy is also helpful. 
creating a community around your goals, whether it's one person or many people. Studies show that when you share your savings goals with people that you trust, you're not only more likely to save money, you're going to save more, in fact, in the end, than somebody who kept their savings goals to themselves. It keeps you accountable. So accountability is another really great behavioral trick, making sure that you're putting your goals out there and you will feel more pressure in a good way to achieve them. Can I do what you did with Tony, where I have some questions to run by you that my listeners have asked? Yeah, for sure. I can't wait because I think this is a great way to wrap up Money Month with some questions that listeners have asked. Here is one from Mia Moore. How do you plan for an inconsistent income? Wow. So this is a lot of people these days. 40% of Americans are on their way to becoming freelancers. So giving up that steady paycheck, and I'm one of them. In the beginning of your freelance career, it's really important to save as much as possible and to squirrel away, I would say, at least a three-month to six-month savings cushion so that when there are t- will be times when you know, you'll have a month, you're not going to make anything, and then you'll have a month where you're making a lot of money so that you can navigate those inconsistencies, those income inconsistencies a lot smoothly because you have a cushion from which you can tap that savings to to cover for expenses when one month you're dry. So unfortunately, freelancers have to be especially vigilant about saving money. So when you're making that first few five to 10 paychecks that you're literally saving, I would say 30 to 50% of them. And then you don't have to going forward, but just in the beginning, being extremely conservative and buckling down and paring down so that you're really opening up yourself to more freedom in the future when money is coming in in drips and drabs. Mia and Julie ask, how do you handle your blog as a business? And this is, I think, not so much a money question, but a financial structure question. For people that have blogs, is it an LLC that you recommend? Do you have any thoughts on what structure you should have for your business? If it's a blog, wow. So I'm an S-corp not just because I'm a blogger. I have a lot of other, it it really, in the end, as I've been educated about, it saves you a lot on taxes, far more than an LLC save you with taxes. Like if you're working with clients one-on-one a lot, I would say maybe an LLC is better. But if you're just kind of a solopreneur and a lot of your output is intellectual property, like a podcast or a blog or um, books, things like that, materials, I would say maybe an escort, but I would say this is not really a question for me, but maybe just an accountant or a certified financial advisor who can maybe for an hour of their time, maybe you pay them like a hundred bucks and they'll help you get that answer solved specifically for you. So I'm just speaking very genuinely here. Do you have any other thoughts or tips for people that have money issues around blogging a business? Because that did come up a few times with different people's questions. Are they more curious about how to monetize the blog? Some person asked about how to save the money for your taxes as you go. Yeah, I have a rule of thumb, which is that every time you earn money through a freelance job or from any gig that you have, save 30% of it at least. Just tuck it away. And I pay quarterly my taxes. So I would say get on a schedule of paying your taxes throughout the year so that you're not faced with this giant bill at the end. Try to the best of your ability. Sometimes it's difficult, I know, because it's inconsistent, the income. But if you can look at the last two years or the last year of income, and maybe you just assume that's going to be your income for this year, 
And you can adjust along the way, but it's important to pay your taxes quarterly because one, I think it'll just help you stay more on top of your money. Like you will actually have a better estimate of what is yours to keep and what is yours to give away to the IRS. And also, I do think that there are penalties attached to paying only once a year when you're freelance. Like the IRS really rewards people who pay quarterly. So getting a bookkeeper or working with someone with like a tax accountant, a tax preparer, paying them to help you navigate all of that. I do. I mean, that was one of the first people that I hired when I went freelance was an accountant. From that withholding penalty, it's not very high. So if someone is stressed out, like I, no. my accessory company that I had for so many years, most of the income came at the end of the year anyway. So it was very hard to equalize the taxes throughout the year because most of the income came at the end. So for me in that, it made most sense and it was only a few hundred bucks, but it is a huge ticket to pay yeah. <laughs> at the end versus over time like you're sharing. Yeah, it is. And just be really vigilant about your bookkeeping. And some people have asked me this question, do I hire a bookkeeper? Do I do it myself? I do my own bookkeeping. And these days it's really easy if you're putting all of your expenses onto a business credit card and and everyone should do this. I mean, if you're, if you're going into business, you should have a separate business account, savings, checking in a credit card, because that way you can really silo all those expenses and transactions. And when it comes to being tax time, you can just pull all of that and easily crunch the numbers. Do you use FreshBooks? I don't. I'll have to look that up. FreshBooks. I love it. It is like Facebook for accounting. I used QuickBooks for years and I hated the system and the interface was just very anti-intuitive. And I switched over to FreshBooks and have not looked back. I'll put a link in this show notes for anyone that's kind of interested in checking it out. It's a joy to do my bookkeeping, which I never felt before. That's something, a joy. Wow, that you never really hear that. One of the things they do is they will, when you upload your logo, it will automatically customize the color scheme of your page. Oh, sweet. To your brand. So everything looks like your brand. When you're in there, it's not like you're in FreshBooks. You're in your own company's branding and color scheme. It made me immediately feel at home in this space. Like I said, it's just really user-friendly. I'm obsessed with it. You have to check it out. I'm so checking it out. I actually just loaded it. When I get off this podcast, that's what I'm going to be doing. Let's move on to another question. This is actually something you just kind of touched on, but I want to reiterate it. So Stephanie asks, how much should you have on hand for an emergency fund? She has heard three to six months, 12 months, and she's kind of stressed out by that as she's trying to save for a house. Where do you think it should fall? I know they're kind of all over the place. I mean, 12 months is super ideal and and that is an aspiration. And I think especially as a freelancer, the more you can save, the better because when it rains, it pours and then there could be a drought. And so we want to hope for the best, but plan for the worst. And so a 12 month cushion is really going to save your arse when, and remember, like even as entrepreneurs, you might want to pivot. And if, so it's not like People aren't coming to you, but you just don't want to take on new projects because you are transitioning. And so maybe that means not making as much money for a year so that you can reinvent your business. And that's a beautiful thing. So you should be able to have some money to support you through that time. And 12 months is, is, it would be a very generous amount to have. And I said earlier, like three months to six months is great as much as you can. I think if you got three months, you're in good shape. If you can do six months, you're in great shape. And if you can do anything more than that, you're like all-star. 
It's tricky though, when you've got retirement to put into as well, and you have student loans per se, having that huge cushion is great, but it also is that opportunity cost of paying down your student debt or putting into your 401k, your Roth IRA. Right. So I'd say if you want to aim for like a three month cushion and then, okay, now you've got student loans, you got credit card debt, that that becomes priority. But then once that's gone, imagine that the debt was still there and put the money that you're putting towards the loans and the credit cards to the savings. Becca and Tiffany asked, how do you handle being a breadwinning wife? Which I thought was perfect for you since this is something you're experiencing as well. (laughs) Uh, Well, I wrote a whole book about it called When She Makes More. So how do I handle it? You know, what helps us is that neither one of us thinks as money as a, a source of power in the relationship. We are in constant communication about money, which not enough couples are in. You know, a lot of couples avoid money altogether, or they just talk about money when there's a serious issue at hand. We keep money a, a very fluid conversation in the relationship. And we have to, because if we have a son and we're going through a renovation project, so it kind of, it, it is inevitable with us. What does it mean to be in constant communication about it versus how other people might deal with it? I'm curious on what that looks like. Like we have a financial planner. So she said like we have at the very least like a quarterly meeting with her. I, um, if I'm going to talk to my accountant on Friday, I'm going to CC my husband. So he's on the call. We're going through a renovation project. So he and I are talking about, you know, the other night comfortably, what would we want to spend on furniture for the new apartment? Like we don't assume that there's any one person in relationship that has financial power over the other or whose decision-making is better. We assume that this is a team effort. You know, there are certainly things that I will buy without asking him, but we even have a threshold for that. We text each other about deals that we found. Money is not a taboo topic. You know, maybe we don't talk about money every day, but we don't hesitate to talk about how much something costs and should we afford it and where can we find a better deal and what do you think this is really worth and um, we're going to go on vacation. Where do we go? How much do we want to spend? I don't give it all up to one person in a relationship to, to make those decisions. And to be honest, for a while, it was just me in this, this vacuum, like making financial decisions, because as the breadwinner, I inherited this disposition of like, oh, well, I make more, so I'm just going to make all the decisions. And not because I felt that I was better at it or deserved it, but I just, I didn't know better. That's why I wrote the book is because I felt I, I was really secure in so many other ways about money. But when you're suddenly in a relationship as a woman, as the breadwinner, there's a lot of insecurity and uncertainty around it. And he as well also feeling uncertain about it too. He admitted to me that he didn't always present ideas and object to things because he made less and felt that he didn't have as much, uh, I guess, weight, financial weight in the relationship and that his ideas didn't hold up as much as maybe mine did. And he didn't suggest things like, where should we go on vacation? And, and I told him one day, I was like, you know, I feel very alone on this island of when she makes more. I really want a partner in this. And I don't want this whole income disparity thing to make one person feel less than or more than the other. Like, it's just money. Let's just use it as a means to an end. And since then, it's been a lot better, but we had to have this very like conscious discussion about it. And I just brought it up because I knew that it was like this elephant in the room. And I don't think that we're alone in, in this paradigm. You know, as we know, more and more women are becoming breadwinners in their marriages and there just isn't a rule book for it because it's very emotional. We talked about this from the very beginning of the show. Money's emotional, but when you add to that this layer of new normal of women making more in their marriages, because what happens is when she makes more, being the breadwinner is a big job. It comes, it carries a lot of stress. But on top of that, as a woman, you don't relinquish a lot of your other 
different roles that you want to meet. Like you want to also be very active as a mom and as a wife and you feel like you have to like cook and clean. Like, did you know that when she makes more, she actually does more housework than a woman who makes less? Really? Yes. Because she's trying to emotionally overcompensate for a role that she is playing that in her mind is very traditionally masculine. So she overcompensates in the housewifery department. It's so psychological. This is what the book explores. And I learned a lot through this, through the book writing and talked to a lot of marriage therapists and gender experts and couples that are struggling, but also couples that are thriving. And I pulled from my relationship as well. And I hope that at the very least it'll be a conversation starter for couples. And women have come up to me and said, like, this book saved my marriage because we just didn't know how to communicate over this very uh, nuanced thing. And of course, society isn't ready for this either. Pew just did a study and found that a majority of Americans still feel that it is a man's responsibility to be able to support his family single-handedly before getting married. Tricky subject. (laughs) Tricky, tricky subject, yeah. Last but not least, this one I think works for both full-time people and business owners. The question is, ever since I've been transitioning from my full-time job to my business, I'm getting a lot of invasive questions about my money and where it's coming from and how much I'm making. And she's uncomfortable when she gets these pretty nosy questions she feels about her income. Do you have any thoughts on how to tackle those questions? Yeah. Who's asking her? I'm guessing from what I recall of the email that it is possibly family members and coworkers or friends. I think those three categories, but I'm not sure exactly which is giving her the most trouble. And, you know, it's, it's going to happen. Family members can be nosy and they don't understand. And to be honest, when I go home for Thanksgiving, like, no one really understands how I make money. People still make, like, how do you make any money? I don't think my grandpa thinks I have a job. <laughs> yeah, like... <laughs> I've educated them though. Like my husband's grandfather the other day at my child's birthday party, he was like, how's the brand? And he's like 90 years old. So I feel like I've over time educated them, but it's not your job to really educate. Like, you know, I think there's a way to dance around it. You could say something like, well, a lady never reveals, you know, you can be kind of playful about it. Like, well, a lady would never reveal her financial situation. It's, it's not ladylike, which we know is BS. But like, if they're going to be nosy, like you should just be kind of fresh back to them a little bit, but without being disrespectful or rude, you know, and you, you could just be very honest and be like, I got a lot of irons in the fire. Um, I'm just really grateful that I have the opportunity to pursue my passion right now. I have some really good clients. You can just kind of be vague about it. You know, I've got some good clients or I've got some projects that are really doing well and building some momentum, you know, just throw some like fancy words out there and. Maybe then just change the subject and be like, so uh, how's your job, you know, and then just kind of flip the conversation. But, you know, just have some, as I say, these like um, canned responses and you might want to think about what they are. Like maybe it's you say things like, you know, business is brisk. I'm very fortunate. I've got a couple clients looking to uh, expand, you know, (laughs) you can just speak around it. You don't have to go into the details like, oh, XYZ client is going to pay me this much to do these specific tasks. That's just not anyone's business and it's probably boring for them to hear anyway. Um, I say to people like, you know, I have multiple revenue streams. I work with clients one-on-one. I do some TV projects. I do some writing projects. All is very different and it's always changing. So I can't really give you a firm answer on that because it's always evolving. It's always changing. It's kind of what's exciting about the work that I do. 
I love that. Yeah. My dad used to say when I was in high school and I had my jewelry business and people would ask how much I was making, he'd say, it's either too much or never enough. I mean, I do have a friend who's a personal finance expert. Her target audience is single moms. And she is a big proponent of sharing your income. I just feel like you can share that with people that you trust and who ask respectfully and want to know for a good reason. For example, if they're curious about how to um, charge a client or they're about to go in for a job interview and they don't know what, how much the industry pays, but you have some insight, that's great if you can help someone in that way by sharing personal anecdotes. But to post it on, and some people have, they post their revenue online. Like I know John Lee Dumas, who does the Entrepreneur on Fire show, but that's part of his brand. Like he's completely transparent and he's helping podcasters and he wants to really be a, a teacher. So he does that. And I think it adds to his credibility. That's unique. If everyone in the world started to share their income, I don't know. I think it could be more beneficial for some than others. I just don't know. Go with your gut. Go with your gut. Yeah. Let's move into our last two questions. Number one, what non-money doubts or resistance are you currently dealing with in your life right now? Hmm. Well, I'm a new parent. And I think as all, a lot of new parents feel, I do have my insecure moments. I feel like I'm not spending enough time with him sometimes. I feel like I'm not focused enough when I'm with him. And I think that's just my own I think, and I think a lot of moms feel this way, working moms. It's like, you just feel like you're just never giving enough of yourself to your kids. And I think I just have to remember that what's more important to my son to witness is that my husband and I have a really healthy relationship and a good relationship. And I didn't really grow up necessarily with that in my household. And as much as my mom spent a lot of time with me and was a stay-at-home mom a lot of my journey in, in growing up, you know, they fought a lot and I, I didn't feel like I got a good representation of what it was like to like see a happy marriage growing up. And I need to just remember that I'm, I am giving my son a lot of exposure to a great life. It may mean some trade-offs, like not as much mommy time, but in the end, like I think he's going to see a really healthy depiction of what it means to be in a happy family and a happy marriage. And sometimes mom works, but she's happy because of it. And that helps me get through some of the guilt trips. So what would you tell someone who is just starting out on this journey? You're going to get a lot of advice from people and it's tough because you want to, you want to take it all in and you want to expose yourself to a lot of perspectives and and get feedback, but don't let anyone who tells you you can't do something get in the way. I know we've heard that before, but that can really change your story sometimes. You know, going back to that story, don't let anyone shape your story, be in control of your story, be in control of your truth. Be open to failing. It's going to happen. So just be aware of it and be willing to fail. Um, it's not going to be an easy climb. And always be in check with yourself to make sure that what you're taking on and the projects that you're doing and the, and the steps that you're taking are really authentic to you and true to you. Because I had moments of insecurity in my journey where I felt like I was getting negative feedback sometimes where people were like, well, you know, for TV, you have to be really eccentric or like, Farnoosh, you're not like crazy enough or like out there enough. I'm not Jim Cramer. I'm not Susie Orman. I'm not a loud mouth talking. I'm different. And sometimes that doesn't translate well on TV, I suppose, for ratings. But I thought that doesn't mean that I'm not going to be able to have a voice and and reach people and do the work that I want to do. It just means I got to do it on my own. And so now I have a podcast and I'm doing the show that I always wanted to do on my own terms. 
and the audience is coming and that's really fun to see. And so just use that as an example. Like you're going to get rejection. There are, there are people who are gatekeepers that might you feel like you can't get past. Take the rejection in stride and use it as an opportunity to figure out, okay, how am I going to pivot? How am I going to do this anyways and find your way? I love that. Farnoosh, thank you so much. You are amazing. And I am so glad we got to wrap up Money Month with you. I'm so honored. And these questions were so great. You have a wonderful audience, Jess, and your show is fantastic. Thank you for the work that you do. And there you have it. Farnoosh, thank you so much for coming on the show. And thank you for listening. If you'd like to send Farnoosh a message, you can do so over on Twitter. Her username is really simple. It's at Farnoosh. And if you'd like to find me on Instagram or Twitter, you can do so at Jess C is in Chocolate Chunk Lively. That's a little shout out for Kim Vargo, a friend of mine, Yellow Brick Home, who's been on The Lively Show. She asked me to throw Chocolate Chunk, her amazing little pit bull's name, into the mix. If you would like the show notes for this episode, since there's so many great book resources and topics you might want to explore more, you can go over to JessLively.com slash Farnoosh Torabi, F-A-R-N-O-O-S-H-T-O-R-A-B-I. And now for a sneak peek about next month's summer series. July's theme is book club month. Each week, we'll be speaking with a different author about their book. I hope that these interviews, A, help you just learn about this book even if you don't read it, and B, give you a great introduction to it so it helps you guys figure out if this is a book you'd like to explore deeper. To kick off Book Club Month, I am speaking with Gretchen Rubin next week about her new book, Better Than Before. You may know Gretchen as a best-selling author of The Happiness Project, and she has recently been exploring the topic of habits, why we have them, why some people struggle with them, and why other people don't. It's a fascinating interview. It's one of my favorite topics that we've had on The Lively Show so far. Until then, may something wonderful happen to you today. 